Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking exercise programming with Ree Reynolds. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we are joined with my good friend, Ree Reynolds, who is a board-certified and licensed athletic trainer and certified strength and conditioning specialist with a bachelor's in athletic training, master's in sports science with a concentration in strength and conditioning, and is currently a health and human performance PhD candidate. Beyond her formal education, Ree is also a national champion Olympic weightlifter with over a decade of experience training clients from gen pop to athletes. Ree, what's going on? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great. How's PhD school? Let's start there. It's, um, it's great. I'm learning a lot, but it's very intense. It's a lot different than, um, undergrad or grad school, but, um, I'll say I chose it. (laughs) Um, it's, it's hard to balance between everything, but it's, I know it's going to be worth it. Well, you chose it just like you always seem to choose other hard things which I think is why we get along so much because you just push through and persevere through shit and you're a fucking beast. <laughs> I always try to, to pick things that I, I know are going to make myself better, even though in the moment they're not, they don't seem to be ideal as you can empathize since you're in grad school right now as well. Yeah. It fucking sucks. <laughs> and, and Nicole, Nicole knows all about it. <laughs> As much as I'm learning and I'm investing in myself, it's like it's a, such a painful process sometimes. It's just it like, makes you grow. It's what makes you grow. Pain makes you grow. You got to lean into that discomfort. And when you feel like quitting and you don't, that's what makes you stronger. Exactly. Speaking about getting stronger, I do want to take some time today to speak with you about programming, exercise periodization, why we need to program what some of the do's and don'ts behind programming and really just kind of develop a conversation around that, because I think that is an area that you excel in that is of significant value to our audience. So I think I want to start the conversation by asking why we need to follow a program, because you find people that go into the gym every day and either do the same shit or do some random shit and They don't really know. It's kind of misguided. And being a former trainer in the gym setting, trying to convince people why having a program is valuable, I think is important for our audience to hear about. So talk to us a little bit about programming and why why it's important. Okay, great. Um, So there's a caveat between that because people are either misguided where they don't know anything about what a program is because they see different things that may seem more sexy, so to speak, on Instagram um, that aren't generally that effective or they're just not, they're not experienced at all. So the difference between walking into the gym with a program and walking into the gym without a program is that you have everything that you need right in front of you. Everything is organized the way uh, according to your goals. So if you have a goal in general at all, you need to follow a systemized plan. And a program is basically just that systemized process in order to get you there. 
there's many different programs that are available out there, good and bad, uh, but you do need to make sure that you're following something that takes into account your lifestyle as well as what your goal is, if you have any injuries and you know different variables like that. So you mentioned different programs for different goals. What does that kind of look like in terms of like, let's say my goal is to build strength versus build muscle. What are the differences between those in terms of programming just as like a general guideline? Generally, when you're working on building strength, that's a neuromuscular adaptation as opposed to hypertrophy, which is everyone knows is increasing cross-sectional area of the muscle. So organization of exercises is important. Frequency is important as well as different rep ranges that you're going to be working in. So hypertrophy, there, there's going to be some variation across, you know, the literature depending on rep ranges, but they're, they're, they still stick to the same reference point. So hypertrophy is usually around eight to 12 repetitions. And then for strength, it's anywhere from, you can still gain strength with doing heavy single. So anywhere from like one to six, uh, but it really depends on what you're looking for. And also the intensity that is applied doing a lot of repetitions with a really heavy weight, like maxing out, not ideal in the long term. you know, you still need to train to failure at some point so you can have a good stimulus, but that's something again, with a program that needs to be organized over time. Uh, same thing goes with strength. Now, if you're in a, well, let's say you're in a hypertrophy program because hypertrophy programs are my personal favorite programs. So you're in a hypertrophy program, but you're going to need to, at some point, build some strength in order to continue building muscle, right? So you're going to go Absolutely. through, you're going to go through phases. And I guess this is where periodization comes in. So talk to us a little bit about periodizing programs, why we do that and how we do that. Okay. Um, periodization is an overall plan. So it's looking at the big picture and then a program is a part of that plan that is driving the cycles of the periodization. If you look at typical periodization, most commonly people associate that from what they know in sports, you know, the preseason, the in-season, the off-season and postseason, as well as competition. And then a program is a, a piece of that puzzle. So in terms of the periodization, there's different levels of that. So you'll have the largest Division of that being the macro cycle. So that's anywhere from like a couple months, you know, normally like four to six months to a year. If you're an Olympic athlete, that's going to be a four year cycle. So that's the quadrennial cycle. And then you move down to the mesocycle, which is typically what people mention as a program, a program being that one particular piece. So a mesocycle is usually, you know, a couple weeks to a couple months. So that's an integral part of the puzzle. And then from there, you go to a microcycle, which is typically a, a week of training, or it could extend to a few weeks. And then you have your in, intercession. So it depends on how you structure that in order to align with your goals. But when you're periodizing training for any type of athlete, that typically looks like building a base in the beginning. So if you, any type of athlete, if they, they tell you when they're in the preseason, it's usually hell on earth because that's when you're, you're building cardiorespiratory fitness, you're building a base. Uh, they're doing a lot of hypertrophy training because obviously when they're in season, that's going to be a terrible idea. And also those athletes aren't going to perform well. As far as a program is concerned, if you're, you're training for hypertrophy, you still want to dip into that strength range because you, you want to be able to push more 
the goal is to increase the cross-sectional size. So you want to be a little bit stronger. So then you can move into the next phase of hypertrophy training and push a little bit more weight. So then you have progressive overload. So you're talking about increasing your strength so that you're ultimately going to be pushing higher repetitions at a higher weight. Yeah. So I w I'm not saying max out, you're not doing like one RM bench pressing or one RM squat, but I would say getting closer to base strength, um, where you have that crossover between strength and hypertrophy. So maybe more towards the, the six to eight range would be ideal. And then having that unloading period between, between the program. So between the mesocycle, so then you're able to make the necessary adaptations and recover. And so you mentioned progressive overload, which I think is by far one of the most important concepts and the most important, the most crucial misses, I guess I'll kind of word it like that, because oftentimes when you see people in gen pop in the gym, they, they don't really understand the concept of progressive overload. So I do want to kind of dive into that a little bit. And part of what I, the way that I explain it to people is kind of from like an ancestral viewpoint. Like if you are a caveman walking around and you're not pushing yourself enough for an adaptation to occur the next time that that thing happens, you could potentially die. Right. So kind of the, I, that's how kind of, I kind of explain it because <laughs> to me, it's the concept of like working hard and changing things so that your body adapts. So can you kind of dive into that a little bit without the cavemen? <laughs> yeah. Let's leave the cavemen out of it. <laughs> I heard cavemen are strong word on the street. <laughs> Yeah. And they ate a paleo um, diet and they didn't yeah. have any lectins and they didn't have any nightshades and shredded. Uh, yeah. Even though they probably just ate the only thing that they can really find. <laughs> um, as far as progressive overload is concerned, it's something that's completely necessary to drive any type of adaptation. You, I think a lot of times what people misconstrue with that is they, again, there's also things that you see on social media where it's a lot of band resistance or, um, body weight exercises, you know, for like toning, but obviously that's, that's something that's okay. Those workouts are okay to a point, but then you're not adding any type of load to those exercises in order to have sufficient stimulus. So you're able to, uh, change your, change your body. So whether that's to gain muscle or whether that's to have muscle tone of which is, something that's thrown around all the time, basically muscular endurance. Um, you still have to have muscle for that, but in order for our bodies to adapt, we just have to do a little bit more each time. And that has to be organized in an appropriate fashion. Um, a lot of times I, I work a lot with people who have had injuries and what they perceive loading or intensity, um, weight training as, is they, they think it might be bad. Like they think that someone told them, Hey, this isn't something I should be doing. I shouldn't be lifting something. They just associate it with somebody who's powerlifting. They think, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pick up that much weight, which it doesn't have to be that, but we do, we still need to load the system. And that's where the gas principle can come into play as well. Just explaining that to a client. Um, if you want me to elaborate more on that, I can, but that, that, that's a, an easy way to explain to a gen pop person, why it's important to have stepwise progression and also incremental loading. So they're able to make, get to their goals basically. So I do want to get into the gas principle and I do want to give Nicole an opportunity to chime in here, but <laughs> before we get into gas principle, I want to talk a little bit more about progressive overload and how that looks because you don't necessarily have to be changing one variable, right? It doesn't just have to be load. It does. No, it, do, it doesn't. You can change. You, you can 
utilize progressive overload by changing the, the load. So that's the weight or the intensity. You can change it by adding more tension. So adding a tempo. So you're able to have more time under tension to the muscle. Um, you can change the specificity of the exercise. So it, there's different ways that you can organize it so you can have progressive overload. And even if you're doing some type of cardiovascular training, um, intensity is going to be your heart rate or um, a distance, a distance applied to that. Um, again, also volume is something that you can do as well. Adding a set to something and, and keeping the weight the same, but intensity and volume have an inverse relationship. And that's important for any type of program you need to have. If you have high intensity part of the program, you need to have lower volume. And if you have higher volume, there's going to be decreased intensity. If you raise both of those at once, then you're going to end up overtraining at some point or just burning out and being stale and not able to progress onto the next step. So you can change many different variables to progressively overload your program, but you don't want to change intensity and volume at the same time, at the same time. Yeah. You don't want to change. I like to keep it simple in terms of programming. You don't want to change everything all at once. Like if you're writing, if you're progressing somebody as far as an exercise and you had them doing, I like to use just the back squat as an example, you can still have them squat, but change it to either a front squat, or you can change it to a safety bar squat or something that's a different stimulus, but they're still able to achieve the same type of result. I could not agree with you more, but let me say this. I wanted to go back a little bit in terms of what you were saying about the different types of cycles and the program. When we talk about trying to educate clients on the idea behind this big picture program and the program within the program type of structure, I think the reason why clientele don't understand that is because they're thinking of the, the like you said, the Instagram four week, 12 week like booty band program that they think is just miraculously going to change their body. And it's also not individualized to the specific person. We're taking mm -hmm. these generic basic exercises. They create burn and intensity to some extent. And people think if they repetitively do that over and over for however long, Ever. that that's what's going to create. <laughs> yeah. Change. <laughs> so I just want to point that out, especially for our listeners, because it is really important to understand that we put a lot of thought, or at least we do here on this podcast, put a lot of thought into these programs. We're not writing them on a napkin and running out onto the fitness floor and just throwing exercises at people, which trust me, I've seen people do. We're really thinking of this in a long-term uh, big picture. You know, I program clients programs for almost a year creating these cycles. So even though they get them in shorter bursts, they, the big picture in my brain is already kind of set up and, you know, planned ahead. So I just wanted to point that out. Well, Nicole, to your point, I, I don't necessarily think that a 12 week program purchased online from some influencer is always entirely bad. But I do think that, again, to your point, you purchase a 12 week program and then you do the 12 week program and then you go and you do the 12 week program all over again. That's where you're not really progressing. I think that's where there's a big disconnect. Like somebody will buy a program online and then they'll just continuously do that program over and over again. And there's no change in stimulus. Like we're talking Expecting about Expecting a result is my point. You're right. Yeah. Nothing is inherently bad. Like we If you, if you were to take somebody and re, you can let me know your thoughts on this. Like if you were to take somebody from, you know how they use the term like couch to 5k, right? Like if you were to take somebody from the couch right. to just exercising and moving, they're going mm -hmm. to see some results, but at some point, that plateau. after that 12 week point, like, okay, well, what do you, what do you do now to continue to see results? Yeah. So they'll probably see, 
if they bought a 12 week program, they might see results even after they ran it through a couple times, as long as they kept the intensity in Pushing. a safe range. Yeah. And, but they did increase it from the last time, but mm-hmm. the fact that they're doing the same exercises over and over and over is what's going to lead to some type of accommodation. So that's usually a couple months. Like once they establish some sort of baseline level of fitness, then they, they need something else to take them to the next step. But for general, you know, general populations, they're, they'll probably succeed to some extent just because they're following some type of organization. Yeah. Yeah. Just some type of organized plan. But that, that also goes back to the point, if you are doing something wrong, if they're doing the exercise incorrectly, then they're also accumulating repetitions, doing the exercise incorrectly as well. But that's, that's another topic we could discuss at some point. Yeah. So you mentioned gas principle. Let's get into that. So the gas principle is, um, what Hans, I always say his name wrong. Zelle had, um, developed, well, he, he developed it as far as, um, how our body responds to stress. So it wasn't originally developed for exercise. Um, John Garhammer actually took the gas principle from him and then applied it to the strength and conditioning world, but it doesn't change the principle at all. It's just taking it and using it, um, in terms of exercise and periodization. So exercise is a stress, right? So it's just applying it to a different type of stress, right? Yeah. It's just a exercise, is just, just a different stress. Our body doesn't know what it is. <laughs> Our body doesn't know, Hey, I'm going to go exercise. It just knows what it perceives as a threat and how it responds to it. So there's three different phases in the gas principle. There is the alarm phase, the, um, resistance phase, and then the exhaustion phase, the alarm phase ends up being where you apply that first stimulus. So if you went to the gym for the first time, we'll just use a gen pop person, for example, um, the first time that they had gone and say they go in with their trainer, if they go and they're following a program, <laughs> um, when they work out, they're going to experience soreness. They're going to have decreased performance the next day. They're going to be tired. So that's the alarm phase. That's the in- initial stimulus and the shock that they experience. So it pushes them below where their normal baseline level of fitness is when they have appropriate rest, they're going to rebound and then be at a super compensated level of fitness, but that is only if they have the appropriate rest. So if they receive too much of a stimulus in the beginning, so say the workout's too hard, which we see all the time when um, clients come to us and they say, oh, my trainer crushed me the first workout. It was amazing. Um, That's too much of a stressor and that takes more time to recover from. So the the bigger the stimulus, the longer period of recovery you're going to need um, to be elevated above that baseline level of fitness. Also can be referenced to if you are speaking about athletes and they are peaking for a competition and then they have the taper before the competition, they're actually pushed into a state of what's called functional overreaching. So that's purposely pushing them into that point where they're, you know, slightly overtrained. And then they have a couple of days to a week, week's time, depending on the sport and what they're doing, but um, they have that appropriately planned rest. And then they all have the elevated capability so they can perform on competition day. The exhaustion phase is what you want to stay away from. That's if you just keep prolonging that alarm phase, keep prolonging it and keep prolonging it, then that will lead to non-functional overreaching and then eventually overtraining. I feel like that is pretty much all of my new 
client, like any new client that comes into the gym that goes, I'm going to come in, I'm going to work out five days a week. The <laughs> new year is coming. I've got this new program. I'm going to absolutely dominate. And they destroy themselves in the first five days. And then they quit the gym and never come back after the like 5th of January. And they think, you know, exercise sucks. This is never going to work. Yeah. And then that, that leads to a, if they're improperly educated, it leads to having some type of poor perception of what working right. out ends up being. And then it decreases motivation as well. So if they think every time they're going to work out, it has to take that much work and then there's no results or um, return on investment, then they're yes. not going to want to do it. And they'll say, oh, I tried that. It didn't work. But they didn't know that having something in an organized fashion and having small goals along the way to the bigger goal is ultimately what's going to get them there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why New Year's resolutions crash because <laughs> they coming. come in with that. Yeah, it's coming. But <laughs> I think if so for our listeners, if you're if this is something that you're planning to do for New Year's as the <laughs> new year comes up, take it slow, get into the gym, ease into a program, get some professional help and make sure you're you're not, you know, throwing yourself self up against the wall just to get a quick result. Absolutely. We, we kind of talked offline a little bit about and it makes me think of like the Monday gym goer, like the person mm-hmm. that goes in on the go, person that goes in on Monday and then misses a workout on Tuesday and then misses Wednesday and then says, oh, fuck, it'll come. I'll go back the next Monday. And we talked about that as kind of you're kind of staying in that alarm phase. Yeah. Yes. So that's like a new first workout every time, every time that they come in and they just do usually Monday is universal chest day. That's all of what I see at the gym <laughs> or some type of upper body workout. Um, but that you come in and you just do that same workout and then you come back the next week and you do the same workout, then there's no, and there's no change in load then that's, that's not going to get you anywhere. You don't have sufficient stimulus each time that you, you need it. So there's also been some studies though, that I, I did find that they tried to do volume equated training as opposed to, um, you know, in relation to, um, frequency per week. So whether it was one time a week, um, but the volume was equated if they were doing two or three times a week, there's, controversial results in the literature, but I did find an article by Schoenfeld that at first was, um, I think this was from 2016. He did a systematic review and meta-analysis. And what he had found was the two days a week ended up being, it suggested that two days a week was going to be more of a sufficient stimulus for hypertrophic adaptations. He also did another study though in 2019. There were 25 interventions that he examined in a systematic review with a meta-analysis and he found alternative results. So he didn't see much of a significant difference as long as the volume was equated. But my question to that, um, you know, when you think in terms of the gas principle is if you're doing, say you're doing 10 sets of 10, but it otherwise would be broken up into five sets of 10 on two different days. If you're doing 10 sets of 10 of something on Monday, and then you have nothing until the following Monday, like, I feel like that's too much of a stimulus at once. Um, to recover from, especially if you need to do other types of training. So in the long term, I don't know if that would be ideal for somebody, for somebody looking to stay healthy, you know, and also the study interventions obviously aren't that long. Like normally when you're investigating any type of strength and conditioning intervention, it's usually four to six weeks. So it's only like a blip on the radar. So it doesn't really, you doesn't really look at the long-term picture if that's going to be sufficient or not, if they're going to plateau at any point in time because they're not having that constant stimulus. 
Yeah. I mean, that's part of the issue with, I mean, a lot of research. I look at a lot of nutrition research and if you're putting somebody in a a metabolic ward for, I mean, what, max three months, and then you're trying to equate a 12 week period of them being fed specific meals and the results from that to a lifetime of eating that way. Mm -hmm. You don't really know the, the, like what the results, you just kind of postulate, all right, like this is what we think. But it's interesting because I think about that in terms of bro splits, right? As a bodybuilder, I always did the the Monday chest, national chest day, right? Tuesday legs, Wednesday back, right? And it's always been effective. I guess the question is really which one would be more effective? Like, would mm-hmm. it be more effective to do two lower body days, two push pull days, because I'm equating the same volume throughout the week and I'm having more stimulus throughout the week or not? Yeah, that's. It's an interesting question because you wouldn't know unless you've really tried it. So obviously you made some, you know, you made adaptations and that worked the entire time, but would it have been better if you had a, I guess it was more of a divided stimulus. So you would have been able to recover from the workouts better because you weren't providing um, too much as opposed to having like this gigantic stimulus and then you had more frequency. So would that have been better? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, so technically, according to the gas principle too, then if I'm in a, if I'm doing it all in one shot, then that's going to delay the recovery till like later on in the week. Yeah. So you're, if you did the universal chest day, um, all of that, everything all at one time. And then the next day, would you say you did legs? Yeah. I mean, I just threw out random, like, I know, but you know. like, say you yeah, did yeah, legs so, the next day, yep. which is, which is a, also a gigantic stimulus, which may be even more of a stimulus than what you saw on Monday. And then you have another day after that. And you just have to realize how much fatigue you're going to accumulate and how long that's going to take for you to, to recover. So there has to be some type of the, the appropriate rest always has to be in place. So you're able to make those adaptations, but would it have been just been better to have not lighter workouts, but I guess more dense, condensed workouts more frequently throughout the week to make better adaptations. But that's something that would have to be examined, I guess, in future research. You know, what's interesting to me when I look at it from a bodybuilder's perspective, I look at how the research can be applied, right? When we're talking about hypertrophy, we're talking about increasing muscle protein synthesis, right? And how do we maximize that, right? So we can maximize that through dietary strategies by having protein within what used to be an, uh, one hour anabolic window. And now it's like a 48 hour anabolic window. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can do it by stimulus. We increase muscle protein synthesis. And now we're talking about frequency of stimulus. Would that be optimal, more optimal or less optimal for increasing muscle protein synthesis? But then you look at, and I, I'll kind of quote Bill Campbell here, where he talks about where we, he was on our podcast talking about comparing, I don't know what it was like, like chickens to humans, right. Where he was talking about how do you, in a sport of bodybuilding, where it's a heavily drug-induced sport, right? So you have natural athletes, natural bodybuilders, and then you have enhanced bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. You can you almost you can't you can't even take that research and apply it to the majority of the bodybuilding population that's enhanced. No, you can't. <laughs> Not at all. So it's interesting because I'm I'm wondering if some of these bodybuilding coaches are kind of behind the scenes looking at this research and then applying it to bodybuilders that are enhanced, which wouldn't really make sense. <laughs> I don't know if they are <laughs> looking at the research or not. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, Just lift the weights, train the so, body parts. 
So moving along in terms of periodization, I want to talk a little bit about different types of periodization because we talked offline about that as well and kind of where that fits or how that fits and the differences between them. Okay. So the most common method of periodization that most people know is just linear periodization. So that is the inverse relationship between intensity and volume. What we had talked about earlier, you start with higher volume, um, lower intensity, and then you increase intensity over time as volume decreases. That was developed originally for more of sports that had a single competition within a year. So you're slowly just working towards that goal, but that's not something that's going to be sufficient if, as far as if you're a multi-sport athlete or if you have multiple competitions in the year. Linear periodization for general populations would be ideal though, if they don't have an established baseline level of fitness. So linear periodization does work and it's fantastic for building, um, building just an overall base. But as far as being more of an advanced or intermediate or advanced athlete, you're going to want to look at either undulating or um, block periodization. Uh, The differences between those undulating periodization is wave-like structures of intensity and volume. So as intensity is high, volume is going to be low, and then you'll have the high volume day with the lower intensity. So that varies throughout the program, and it can be even on the day, like daily, or it can be weekly. So you could have a lighter day, you could have a medium day, and you could have a heavy day. Um, block periodization is more specified, like very focused training blocks that build off of one another. And that's really more designed to keep an athlete at like peak performance for a longer period of time. If they have multiple competitions, typically when you're looking at the competitions as well, and you're structuring the training around it, you'll see some competitions that don't, the athlete isn't peaked for, they don't peak for every single competition, but they peak for the ones that are the most important to them, whether it's like a national championship or NCAA championship or something like that, but like a local level competition or like a scrimmage or something, that's not something they're going to peak for. So that gets taken into consideration as well. When you're looking at the overall periodized plan. Talk to us about the concepts of peaking. Like uh, what does that mean in terms of programming for the athlete? So peaking is a period, like we had discussed earlier, where it's an intensified period of training. It's really meant as an overloading stimulus to push that athlete, give them a very large stimulus. Um, so it's more of a shock to them, um, pushing them below their baseline level of fitness. So then where you have the taper, that's restoring the, the level of fitness, but also you're going to super compensate or rebound from that with a, like a huge level of fitness. So they're going to be able to perform. It's ideally meant for them to perform on that day and have an elevated capability to do whatever they're doing. So that kind of explains why an athlete will PR during an event. Yes. So you're That's essentially, you're essentially catching that wave of super compensated strength and you're like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm going to take advantage of this. I'm going to be strong the day of, and then I'm going to PR, which totally makes sense. Yeah. So that's again, another calculated thing. So there's a lot of investigations where they're, they're looking at different variables like catecholamine release and heart rate variability and things like that to see if they're, they're able to detect functional overreaching versus non-functional overreaching versus overtraining syndrome, you know, but hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Normally, you know, you're going to get to non-functional overreaching that will still reverse as long as you allow a proper period for restoration. But overtraining syndrome is the one that takes months or even years to be able to recover from. 
but yeah, that's, that's the science behind it though. That's why that's, it's very calculated. It goes according to each athlete, each person. So that's why, again, um, when people speak about programming or even just periodization in general, um, it's important to understand that it's a very scientific process. It isn't just like Nicole had mentioned earlier, writing down a few exercises on a napkin and running, running out onto the training floor and say, Hey, do these like there's with no plan at all. Like there's, there's a, a plan in place. And then you work from the top down in order to reach that plan or the goal. I do think there are many trainers out there writing programs on napkins. Yeah, I've seen it. I've not, seen it. <laughs> not, lit- not literally, but like no, not on a napkin. I use that as an analogy for well, like a sheet of paper. This Five is minutes way, before a training client comes in. I've seen it. This is the way I look at it, right? From a training sort of like today, I look at it this way. From a training certification standpoint, that can only get you so far in terms of the science of understanding fitness. It's, it's kind of like the same thing as like when I look at either ISSA or ISSN or uh, precision nutrition certifications where that only gets you so far to, I, I don't even know if some people get a baseline, like a base level of understanding. And if that's even a strong enough foundation, like you're talking about one textbook versus, I mean, read like how many textbooks have you read from undergrad to, you know, now PhD it's, there's, there's so much involved in it that, you know, it's kind of almost like, well, how do we like mainstream this and make this a better process? There's, there's so much out there and every single textbook is going to say how it has to be according to that textbook when that person takes the test. And then they're going to take that information and apply it. And then they'll find out if it's as, as effective as, um, as what they perceive it to be, or, you know, you can take different things and then you, you're applying it and gaining that experience and more exposure to it. Exactly. Listen, you can read all the textbooks in the world, but if you can't apply it to an actual person and use the feedback of that person to create, pivot, change, and address whatever comes up from that actual human being and that personalized program design. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really, I don't want to say I don't care how many textbooks you read, but I, it's important to have both. But you have to keep in mind, like we're dealing with people and athletes. However, I mean, I'm more gen pop. I have athletes in, in terms of bodybuilding and bikini shows and things of that nature. But I still consider a general population client an athlete in life. And I still have to get them to their peak. And I'm still trying to push them. I mm-hmm. think, you know, there's been plenty of times where I created an entire program and I had an, an amazing plan. And then the person gets injured halfway through or something changes throughout or a woman gets pregnant and has a baby. And like that will throw a monkey wrench in your whole program in terms of having to pivot and change and their body physically changes. So then how I design and move on with the program changes. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. that's with an athlete that may get injured or fall into a rut or may not be motivated or have mental like blocks. Mm -hmm. So it takes both the actual education from the coach and then the ability to use that education properly with the person that's in front of them. So I think it's really important to have both of those things. I think it's important just that's like the art of being a good coach too. Yes, so exactly. you have to know what you're doing and you need to be able to justify what you're doing and be able to yes. explain why. But then if something happens and it has to change, you just need to be able to do that mm-hmm. at that point in time and then make the continuous adjustments if you need to. If you're yeah. not able to do that as a professional, then you might need to find another profession. And that's also if when you're 
a program, when we're speaking about programming in general or periodization, that plan is always subject to change. So it isn't like it's going to be, there's um, hard lines with that. They're able to, we're able to change that. And that's, but there's always going to be some sort of plan and it's based on some sort of goal and um, taking a needs analysis and determining, you know, what that person needs for their sport, or if they're gen pop, if they have a health issue, if they have an injury, what their life looks like, what their job is, um, how much they're sleeping and their nutrition, like that all needs to be taken into consideration. So every piece of the puzzle is able to work effectively. I want to backtrack a little bit. You talked about measuring catecholamines. Is that done by measuring heart rate variability? No, no. Like they usually do like salivary cortisol and heart oh, so rate variability. Sorry. You're, you're literally actually measuring catecholic, uh, catecholamines in the saliva. Like excretion. Yeah. The excretion are like urinary excretion. They do like urine tests and stuff um, in conjunction with heart rate variability recordings. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Re, I think, you know, from what we're, we've been talking about, I think this is where you kind of have like almost that triple threat thing going on, right? You're an, you're a trained athlete. You have the experience from the, the exercise and movement standpoint, which you and I have talked about in academia, which you're there too. And then you're also, you have the practical approach where you've actually worked hands-on with people, both, I guess, clinically and in the gym setting. Correct. Mm -hmm. yes. And, uh, you know, you and I have talked about, you have some students that are, you know, you're in a PhD program or you're in a master's program and you don't really work out yourself. So, <laughs> so you don't, you don't fit, you don't actually physically understand what it's like to go through that stuff. You just know on paper, in theory, this should work with somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, and it, it's when we're speaking about that, as long as they're doing something where they're able to take that information and apply it to themselves, that's fine. It doesn't mean they have to be the best athlete in the world or the best coach, as long as they're willing to learn and, and take the information for what it is. But if they haven't practiced that and they just want to take the information and then tell other people what to do, I have a huge problem with that. I just, and I also don't understand that just yeah, from how? being a coach, like, why do you want to be in this program <laughs> if you don't want to take this information and apply it to yourself and other people to make everything better? I just, I, that's something that slips my mind. Well, it's like, do you really, do you actually really love the field? Like, what are you, what are you doing here to begin with? I think that's just somebody that likes to tell other people what to do. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You and, know. I experienced it in grad school too. Um, you know, I'd have a class where there's a lot of lifting and there's, nobody that knew how to lift, um, which is fine. Like you don't need to know every single type of lift out there, but at least have you ever tried to do a squat just with the bar or like a sit to stand to a bench or, you know, a bench <laughs> press or some, something, how are you going to be respected as a professional? Um, say you're you know, going to be a strength coach and you walk into that weight room where you have 50 athletes looking at you and you're not able to be a good example. I, that's just something that that's what I think about it, it, when you, you bring that up, but, um, I could rant on that for a long time. So it's probably not good that you brought that subject. up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, from a programming standpoint, I think that, like, if there's one thing that I don't, that this is my thing is that I don't do Olympic lifting. So from a technical aspect, I like also don't program a lot of it, but that, but that's, so that's what I'm saying. Your, that's fair, I don't right? Do it, I don't yeah. do it. I don't <laughs> do it. Therefore I don't program it. And if you want somebody who's going to be a coach, who's going to program for you Olympic lifts. Yeah. 
I'll send you somewhere else. And I'm perfectly fine with that because I'm not an expert in that. And like, I know the basics. Have I done them before? Yes, but I'm not, I'm not versed. I I don't care what I read in a book. I'm not going to be able to teach it to you. That's how I kind of Of view it. You definitely have to have experienced an Olympic lift to be able to cue. A thousand percent. You have to know what it feels like. I mean, geez, that's of course a no brainer. When I, at any time I've been in school, I take that knowledge and I apply it to myself first because I want to be the guinea pig yeah. so that I can practice. And then I'm like, oh, this, you know, this works really well or, hey, that wasn't a great idea. So then I'm not <laughs> working with somebody and I do the same thing with them. I also want to know exactly what you said, Jerome, is what does that feel like? What does yeah. it feel like? And then I can explain better as a coach, hey, this is going to happen at this period of time. But that's also how you can weed out different coaches and different programs if they're not going to be effective or not (laughs) by just looking to see, do they practice what they preach? Are they an educated professional? And can they explain, can they explain it? What, um, how the, how and why behind it, and then be able to make those alterations. So there's, there's a ton that goes into that. I will say there are a lot of things that I've learned in school from a nutritional standpoint that I'm, I'm still to this day, like this bullshit, man. Like I'm not teaching this shit to people. Like I I really, I really do think, and I don't know if it's different from an exercise science standpoint as it is from a nutrition standpoint, but on the nutrition end, sometimes I kind of have to be like, all right, there's a perfect example. I got, I had the argument, not argument, but disagreement with a professor about dairy. Nicole, we've talked about this Mm -hmm. and professor was like, and I was like, I don't, I'm under the impression that from my experience working with people, I don't think that most people should be having dairy. And I think that like adult humans should not be having dairy. It's an excellent source of protein. I don't want to take away from that. Whey protein is something that I do still recommend to people, but I don't think most people can tolerate it. And I don't think that they like, it's to the point where they don't know that they can or can't tolerate it because they've never eliminated it like that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I've worked with enough people to say, Hey, when this person took out X, Y, and Z from their diet, they've had this result. So I don't really care what the, the science says. The, the, the answer that I got from the professor was, well, you don't, and you know, she doesn't practice nutrition. So, well, she goes, well, the, um, the, the dietary guidelines, they talk about, of course, you, you know, they dietary recommend guidelines. They, so the dietary guidelines recommend milk, right? If you look at the, my plate model, it's mm. a plate and a cup of milk. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> And I said, okay, well, if you look at the my plate model that like Harvard's edition of that, it has a plate and a glass of water. Why does it have a glass of water? Because you don't need milk for calcium. And why are, and so my whole thing was a disagreement with, and I kind of just like threw this out just to almost kind of be a dick because I was pissed off at that point where I was like, you, I, I don't agree with the, uh, dietary guy, I disagree with the dietary guidelines. And I also disagree with the national dairy council, because let's be real from a nutritional standpoint, sometimes the science is skewed. And this is where I said, I don't know if it's different on an exercise science standpoint, um, because I don't really see people actually like lobbying in that field, but sometimes it's skewed by national dairy council wants everybody drinking their product. Therefore Mm -hmm. they're going to lobby for everybody to drink milk and make people believe that the only way to get calcium is milk not nuts and seeds, fish, vegetables, you know, and things of that sort. You don't see that as much in um, the sports science realm because the, the principles really remain the same. It's how you apply them. So if you look at strength and conditioning coaches who are educated professionals, you know, they're, they're able to apply 
periodization and programming appropriately. But then there's the divide between that and then what you see on social media. But what people will say is this person looks aesthetically pleasing. I want to look like them. I'm going to buy their program. So they don't want to do what a strength coach says or an educated personal trainer is going to tell them what to do. They want to look like that person. So then they're going to buy their program and do whatever whatever they think is right is, you know, as in terms of like what that program looks like, oh, this is definitely going to work. And then they'll, they'll just make that generalization, like what we had talked about earlier and just think all oh, programs don't work at the end of the day. Well, yeah. I'm- and plus Darone, wait, hold on a second. Let me in here. You're talking about nutrition from a product standpoint, what they're selling dairy product like that's completely different well like Reed's also talking about the social media influencer selling a program right that's a product exactly that's a product but that's my whole point like there's very difference but there's a difference between selling a product and a and then a principle we're not even selling a principle but that is scientific fact this is how this goes we have proof based on performance different Mm -hmm. than selling a product if you want to argue the whole nutrition side of things that's a whole marketing but i could actually i could jump in and say how the medical field speaks about resistance training or sticking to a program how they perceive that as well and what they communicate that as to general population people so i experienced that a lot I shouldn't lift heavy or, um, I shouldn't do that. Oh, my doctor says I shouldn't lift more than five pounds. That's again, that's like something that we could talk about forever. (laughs) Absolutely. But here's the thing. The reason why I think that happens is this goes back to the whole concept of actual program design is because most people that are coming into the doctor's office that are hurt or are trying to create change are either trying, trying to do it in a quick fix They're trying to do it in a fast way. They're doing Mm -hmm. it uneducated. The doctors have no idea about strength training. I mean, let's be honest. That's the reason why they tell them not to do it because they are uneducated around that realm too. So then you have them come in. Then they come into the gym. I mean, I have physicians in my caseload. They have no idea how to lift. Okay. So I get a chance to actually educate them. And when you teach them, the smart ones go, oh my goodness. Okay. This makes sense. And they want to learn. So the reason why they we get pushed back from the medical community is because if you're if hey listen half the plastic surgeons in the world that are or I shouldn't say that that they're um what is it uh, that are fixing knees and hips and shoulders and they're Orthopedic not plastic surgeons, surgeons. What a, thank you <laughs> they're making tons of money they're doing it in a wrong way they're not doing it in a way that's prescribed progressive overload and successfully monitored a lot of the times they're pushing balls to the wall. They're constantly in that alarm phase and they're just destroying themselves. Like sure. this world is all or nothing. They're either all in and like 90 miles an hour with the hair on fire, drinking dairy. <laughs> <laughs> I or- will argue, but I will, Nicole, I will argue that most of the orthopedic people who go into like- orthopedics. Yeah. But people who go into orthopedics. They are, they're like the bros. They're the lifters usually. Like well, if there's like a specific it- personality. Listen. Of somebody yes, that goes the into type A, 90 miles an hour, more is better, bro mentality. Like, let's be honest, you can be in fitness. Most of, it's one extreme or the other. You're either the gen pop that goes in once a week and does exercises hardcore and consistently destroys yourself. And then over time, everything hurts because you're not strong enough to actually do what you're trying to accomplish. Or you're the person that's overtraining all the time, destroying yourself like the complete other extreme. The goal behind this whole concept of program design is to find that sweet spot where you're actually creating change, working towards progressive overload, 
creating a rest and recovery and then repeating that cycle so that you can do this for a lifetime or mm -hmm. for your specific sport span of time, whatever sport you're in, so that you can do this repetitively over and over forever and continually get strong in a slow, progressive, methodical, thought out way. I am the middle ground person. <laughs> so this is what I say to clients all the time. Like you can go all in and push and hurt yourself. You could do nothing and hurt yourself. But if mm -hmm. you find the middle ground and actually understand the reasons why you're doing things and show up for the gym with a calm, placed, progressive, planned, got to have some fun in there too, um, program, you can actually really enjoy lifting and changing your body and growing and developing for a lifetime. That's why we call it a lifestyle. And even oh. if you're an athlete and you're trying to increase your performance level, you still have to do it in a way that's going to keep you healthy. Mm -hmm. I think the, the two extremes, Nicole, that you mentioned is I, I think we work a lot with the population that we're trying to bring to that middle ground. Right. Yeah. And then there's also the other extreme, which those are the people. And that's the difference between. So you have like an athlete that structures their life. And Bree, I'm sure you can relate to this because I did this too. When I was bodybuilding, you structure your life around your lifestyle is structured around your training. That's the athlete. That's that extreme. Right. Mm -hmm. versus the gen pop where it's like, all right, we're trying to fit your training into your current lifestyle instead of the other way around. Yeah. It's, and that's difficult to explain to people unless they're, they're willing to, um, make some changes as far as their, their lifestyle, because sometimes it means they have to get up a little bit earlier or they have to sacrifice something that is ultimately, I guess, inhibiting their progress. So some, some negative behavior at some mm -hmm. point, but again, with any type of behavior change, it has to be slow and incremental. You can't just do, you can't just go cold Turkey or balls to the wall, like Nicole said, and then expect this gigantic end result. You need to you need to do it slow and progressive, but that's, I think that's more of a societal thing wanting to go or having to go slow and people don't want to go slow anymore. They want that instantaneous. They want the instantaneous result or the change they want it and they want it right now. The other thing I wanted to bring up is when you talk about the re you talked about the programs that like people are like, I want to look like that person. Therefore I'm going to train with them. Have you ever found that? I, I feel like I see this constantly with trainers is that they look a certain way, but they don't train other people the way that they train. They'll be throwing in stuff like box jumps, for example, or burpees or like things that make people sweat and make nice. them feel good throughout that workout. But they're, it's like you hire somebody because you want to look like them and then they train you differently than they train. So you're not going to look like them anyway. Yeah. Well, that's the lack of education and that's also not being a good coach. So they're, all that person knows, or, you know, as a, a, a trainer is I got to kick this person's ass for an hour and they're going to think it's a fantastic workout and they, they're sweating. So they think they're burning fat and, um, you know, then they, they're not doing anything else about it. They're not having, they don't have everything organized. Like as far as workouts, it's just going to be every time they come in, I'm going to kick your ass. And then that, that's how it, it ends up being, but their trainer was asked a question, um, by one of their clients like, Hey, um, this isn't something that I can do. Um, I have a knee injury or, 
hey, I don't, I didn't feel so good the last time I did this, or why are we doing this? I, I can guarantee that person's not going to be able to explain, or they're just going to bullshit it <laughs> and make up something that sounds good. So the person will listen. So that's just, that's just a, the, the difference between being an educated professional with experience and somebody who just got a certification and is just telling other people what to do. I, I would rather lose the client and say, like, I've, I've told clients, like I've had clients that'll be like, I want X, Y, and Z. And I would just say, well, no, I can't give you that because it doesn't make sense for you. Right. And I want you to build muscle over a period of time because, you know, when I look at it from, let's say a fat loss standpoint, I want you to, I want you to do more weightlifting because I want you to build more muscle because building more muscle increases your uh, resting metabolic rate or your basal metabolism. And then that increases your caloric expenditure while you're just sitting around doing absolutely nothing. Uh, and then you're able to go through that whole process of burning fat, but you need to lift weights in order to do that. Right. Where as other people would say, other people would look at it or other trainers or quote unquote professionals would look at that and say, okay, well, I'm just going to kick your ass. So you're quote unquote kind of burning calories throughout this workout. And then we get into, you know, the whole concept of post-exercise oxygen consumption. Like, yeah, you're burning more calories in a shorter period of time, but when you're doing resistance training, the recovery takes longer, consuming oxygen for a longer period of time. And therefore you're burning equal to, or if not even greater amount of calories throughout that process. You'll lose some clients. That's something too, that you have to come to terms with, with being, um, sticking to your morals and also your values as a coach and just being confident in knowing that what you're doing is the right thing, regardless of if you have that client that comes in and is like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, I'm sorry, but this is the best thing for you. I'm not going to change. You might have to, you could change a little bit of something maybe to make them happy sometimes, but nothing to an extreme where it's going against everything that you want for them or what's right for them. Like, you know, or everything that the science says. Yeah. I, I, yeah, exactly. So Re, I want to kind of shift gears before we wrap up here. What is next for you in terms of Olympic lifting? Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I'm, I'm going to um, compete at the end of January in my first, it's just a local level meet um, to get an entry total for the Arnold. But the first competition I've had since 2018. So I had a period of time where I had been overtrained and had multiple injuries. So I've had to overcome quite a few hurdles in that time period, but, um, looking to get back on the national stage, looking to qualify for nationals again in, um, in March at the Arnold. And then from there competing at nationals and then trying to get on the world team and then, you know, just get on as many international teams as I can, but that's the thing that's where you have to stick to a program and also plan everything out. So I have to do that for myself as well as with my clients, my life has to be structured around training, but also with school and also with work, similar to what you're doing, Daron, um, as far as running your business. So, you know, I'm practicing what I preach. If I wasn't able to do that, then I would be a hypocrite. I just want to say something to anybody listening to this podcast that thinks that they don't have time. I was just going to say that. You took <laughs> the words right out of my mouth. Come Seriously. on, people. I know. Re, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate you talking to us and educating our audience. And I wish you the best of luck in your competitions. I know that you're going to crush it because you crush everything that you do. Do you want to plug a uh, social media? Oh, my social media, I'm barely on. It's basically uh, you. It's basically just you lifting. It's just basically me lifting. Maybe my maybe cats. Something? Like, 
Yes, um, cats and yeah. lifting, my kind of girl. Uh, it's Rhiannon underscore Angelina on Instagram. Nothing right. too fancy. <laughs> Nothing too fancy. Nothing just too uh, fancy. if you want to check out relifting, it's literally just video after video of redoing Olympic lifts. <laughs> Nothing impressive right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, share this with a friend, write a review, and you'll hear us next week. <laughs>